welcome back to Dose of Support, a podcast where healthcare professionals share their stories and find community. Let's learn from each other and utilize some self-care in healthcare. I'm Dr. Vanessa Casper, a nurse practitioner, and I'm here to help our guests have a platform to share. Remember, I'm not your healthcare provider and neither are my guests, but we do encourage you to seek out care from your own professional. This podcast is not affiliated with any employer. And let's also remember to protect privacy and abide by HIPAA. It's hard out there. So let's find some self-care in healthcare. Stay tuned. Hey, self-care squad. Welcome back to the huddle this week. I wanted to say thank you to everyone who has been listening, who's participating in the Facebook group, who's sending me some love on Instagram. I really, I'm so glad that you're loving the show. So thank you for reaching out. Y'all, I have had a week off of work. I returned to work yesterday. My work has asked us to use up our PTO as kind of furlough time. And so that's what I did. I took a week off and we were actually supposed to go out of town, out of state to go to a family reunion, which of course was canceled because of COVID. So I didn't get to do the whole family get together and bring my kiddo to meet some family that we haven't been able to meet yet during the pandemic. So we had to cancel that, but we thought, oh, we'll do some hiking and we'll do some, we'll do all the things while we're off. Um, but that really didn't happen either. There was icky weather. I was feeling low energy and it was just kind of a, eh. And you know what? That is okay. I'm reflecting on that and I'm like, I just needed to do nothing. Um, and maybe that just means I need to take more PTO. <laughs> so I'm gonna run that up the chain and ask for more PTO time. My work family is amazing. So stay tuned. Maybe that'll happen. Um, I have a new skincare recommendation that I wanted to let you guys know about. I experienced some really bad, like bad postpartum acne and it was hormonal of course and it was just terrible and I switched my birth control method which has really helped but now I'm left with hyperpigmentation and scarring and um like it was to the point where I was considering Accutane like it was just so bad um so now I'm like trying to rehab my skin and get get some of that scarring and hyperpigmentation to fade um and I'm using Dr. Dennis Gross Alpha Beta Universal Daily Peel pads and they it's basically alpha hydroxy and beta hydroxy acid and there are these little like circular pads and it's it's an acid and they're just like these daily swipes that you do and I'm I've used it for about two weeks and I've I really like it so far I feel like it's helping I feel like it's doing something and I actually got this recommendation from a dermatology PA that works in like cosmetic dermatology so I'm trying it out I really like it it's a little pricey. I'm not getting paid to tell you that I really like it. I just really like it and I had to share. Um, so moving on to this week, we have a chaplain and this episode was really hard for me to record you guys. I despise organized religion. I think it's horrible. And you know what? Megan was like all about that because 
chaplains are trained to embrace wherever you're coming from. And so there's a lot of self, self-awareness and, and self-work that she had to do to become a chaplain. And so she's going to talk about that. And so I hope that you embrace getting out of your silo, learning about these other disciplines, and learning about what a chaplain does this week, because my goodness, her story. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Dose of Support. Today, we'll learn about spiritual care from Megan Pike. She holds a Master's of Divinity degree, and she'll share a story of resilience while working in a historically male-dominated ministry profession. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. So you are the first chaplain that we have had on Dose of Support, and I think that there's probably a lot of variation in your profession since there's so much variation in religion. And I think religion can be a really tough topic um, for people. But how do you approach your your work? Well, I approach um, my work as a chaplain, as um, being an advocate for the patient and family and even staff's um, religious or non-religious beliefs, um, how they cope with what they're experiencing in their life and how that reconciles with what their spiritual background might be or what they're trying to um, uh, develop in the moment. And so um, for me personally, I come from a um, Baptist background, which is um, where I'm endorsed um, through my denomination to do this work of chaplaincy, where I was ordained um, into ministry. And one of the things that's um, significant about the Baptist identity is really being an advocate for religious liberty. And so being a chaplain, I am passionate about um, advocating for individuals to be able to um, celebrate or, you know, their faith or celebrate no faith at all. And so I, I really take it to heart that I want every person that I encounter to know that whatever their you know, using to cope with their circumstances is important whenever it comes to the spiritual side of things. I think that's a really important point to make because we could have listeners that aren't religious and mm-hmm. thinking, well, why should I care about this? And and not that people wouldn't care. I mean, I think sure. we all want to learn how we can serve our patients better. And we all want to know who we're working next to. And you're one of those people. And so I think knowing that you're coming to the, this work with an open mind and and it is never the job of a chaplain to push religion or, or their type of religion on anyone. And I think it's important to say that right at the top. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about the training that it takes to become a chaplain. Sure. Um, well, and that, that can vary based on the environment in which um, the person is training for. Um, specifically in healthcare um, chaplaincy, it's usually expected for a chaplain to participate in what they call uh, clinical pastoral education. And that's um, also known as CPE. And this is a um, intensive training experience, I would say, from um, my perspective. Um, and a lot of the centers, the healthcare um, facilities that offer this type of training 
they also require their um, students, whether that be a year-long intensive residency or maybe it's a summer program or a semester program, um, a lot of times they'll require that you have some type of theological degree. Is that a bachelor's degree that you're talking about? or? Well, it- it, it kind of depends. So there oh. are some centers that would require maybe a bachelor's, you know, a minimum of a bachelor's. Others are going to require a minimum of a master's. And so it really just depends on the center and, and what type of um, chaplains, honestly, that they want to produce. And so I there's different accrediting bodies that operate these CPE programs, um, clinical pastoral education. And so it really just depends on where the people are coming from. Yeah, I think so I I think I need more clarification here because sure. <laughs> um so it sounds like you don't necessarily go to a college for this. No, and but there well, so I'll, I'll nuance it even more. So there are more <laughs> and more um masters level um of divinity, you know, programs or maybe like a masters of theology programs that are focusing on chaplaincy. And so like whenever I went to go get my master of divinity, I had a area of concentration. And so um within that they might focus on chaplaincy work and pastoral care work is what it's also called um, in okay. a lot of places. So, too, so what what I'm hearing you say is basically all chaplains to serve in a facility healthcare environment need to meet a minimum requirement set by this like these organizing bodies that mm-hmm. have kind of set the standard. But the mm-hmm. way that you become a chaplain can be from many different routes. Absolutely. And that can be through college or through um, religious programs that are out there. Yes. We know that the patients that we serve are very diverse in their beliefs. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think it's important to talk about the training you get in other religions or or no religion, how you support people like that and what kind of training you have around that. Sure. So um, a part of our clinical pastoral education training is that we do we participate in didactics. And so we um, will have an educator that will supervise us in that. And so we um, either have someone come in to teach us about a certain faith community, a practice, you know, those kinds of things. Um, or we as the students have to do the work of doing research and then presenting that information to our group. And so, okay, so it's woven into your classroom work um, absolutely to yeah. learn to learn about these other denominations and other belief belief values systems that that people have i i'm really interested in learning about it must be very difficult for you to support someone else's beliefs um if you are struggling to identify with them does that make sense there's like if this if they're so different from what you believe does is that ever a hard part of your job? Well, um, I guess I I've actually had an opportunity to live abroad where my Christian background faith um, was considered the minority, and so I've been able to be in an environment where I was constantly surrounded by people of another faith background, and I think for me personally, that was really helpful um, just to be able to um, listen to other people, celebrate the, the days and the holidays and the significant moments like they do and, and acknowledge that. And then, 
you know, share those same, you know, kinds of moments with them as well. And so for me personally, and, and I would say even for most chaplains that are, are, you know, committed to this work and this training and, you know, is that we are there to bear witness to whatever it is that's helping that person cope um, with their situation in a spiritual, emotional, non-spiritual, non-religious, religious, you know, yeah. whatever it is that they dig into to help them cope. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'll tell you today, I mean, I've had the gamut, you know, I've got people that think that COVID-19 is, you know, the end of the world as we know it, you know, and then oh I've got, I've got other patients or family members that, you know, um, they still think it's a hoax. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm talking about, they think it's like the end times. That's how they're oh reconciling my. it. They think oh that this, is, this is part of like the, end the book times. of revelations. Yes. Yes. So yeah. Um, oh my. Okay. yeah. So but I have to be, I have to be present to that. You know, my job is to, to affirm them in that and to, to affirm them in their way of coping, you know, with, with, with whatever's going on. And so, um, you know, my role is to bear witness to whatever it is that they're using to cope. Of course, I'm also a mandated reporter. So obviously if (laughs) if there's a situation where, you know, I had a patient actually come in, you know, I, I visited them and they, they actually all of a sudden just laid this confession on me that they had been holding in for 50 plus years and were, you know, getting to a point where in their life where they were like, I need to be at peace with this and I need to be able to confess this to someone and know that it's just outside of myself. And to bear witness to that was really challenging because it's something that legally I would have to report, yet it was difficult because it happened, you know, 50 years ago. And so what do we do with that? And, and just hope that the relationship, you know, is repaired and, and all of those things. And then also bringing in, you know, um, another faith community representative that would be able to hear, you know, a confession from a Catholic, you know, patient. And so, so there's just a lot of moving parts in that, you know, of, of, um, being the one that is entrusted with so much information and, and processing of how they're, you know, how they're coping with what they're going through. Did this person commit a crime? Like, (laughs) no, I mean, they actually did. And that's the hard thing. Yeah, no, I mean, they did. And, and, and what's interesting is that really 50 years ago, it probably wasn't, it really wasn't really a crime. Ah, and, and that's very the thing. Interesting. It is. And that's the thing that's just kind of an interesting place where we are in our culture and our world is that, you know, people are having to come to terms with some things that they've done in their life that yeah. are no longer okay, you know? And, and I wonder and- if because you, you have this role of chaplain, you become this safe place to lay those burdens that that people have carried for so long Absolutely. like like almost like the title means that you're this safe person mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so that is a big responsibility uh, you know I, I so i that's what i was getting at is like it, it must be hard to like mm-hmm. when someone thinks that the four horsemen are coming sure like <laughs> it must be hard for you to be like right um yeah. Well, I, I mean, so I'll share a really easy response that, yeah, I'll say that sounds like that's really important to you, you know, or sounds like that, that means a lot to you. And, 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 and what I really loved about what you said in describing this role is being that place of safety, because one of the things that I've learned, and I just find it really funny, because whenever I, um, 
worked in a pediatric um, trauma, uh, level one trauma center, um, I noticed all the adults, you know, in the room are telling that this, you know, this child who's sustained like a gunshot wound, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. And it's like, no, and you're not. And the kid's not. like, yeah, like, y'all are nuts. Yeah, like, I am not okay. And then what <laughs> I interjected and what the child life specialist heard me and, and acknowledged later was I told that that patient, you're safe. You are yeah. safe. You know, yeah. you are safe here with us. Like you are not okay. Like this is scary. And, and for our, our role, you know, we're there to validate and to recognize and to voice, you know, and, and so I, I really see my job a lot as a, as an advocate too, you know, um, because, Sometimes, I mean, oh my gosh, yeah, I mean, I could talk for hours, obviously, on this, but, you know, I mean, it depends on where people are coming from, you know. Yeah. Of- so let's, let's go back because we just keep, uh, we just keep going. Um, is there a, a test that you take when you're done with your training? Is there like, like, how do you, how do you know you're done? And tell me a little bit more about the residency part. Sure. So the residency, um, typically, whenever you're considered to be a resident, you um, are like very similar to other medical residencies. You're there, you're operating in that capacity, yet you're also in training. And so you're having opportunities to um, what, what we some people call it a verbatim, other people call it like a case study. So what we do is we present these on a regular basis, um, like regarding an encounter that we've had. And so I'll give you another example. In my second year residency, um, I uh, ended up having a a baby. And during that time, and I, my my daughter ended up in the NICU, um, totally unexpected. She was born on her due date aspirated meconium. So, I mean, it was just, it was a a really intense experience. So, um, I finally, you know, come back after maternity leave and, um, end up going back up to the postpartum floor. And I walk into a room and I see a baby there, you know, in, in the crib, you know, like the little clear crib. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I had a very, real reaction to that because I didn't get to have that with my baby. You know, Aww. I didn't get to have that experience with my child. And so my child ended up in an isolate, you know, and, and yeah. had to be taken by ambulance to, you know, the children's hospital in town. And so, um, so I, I presented that as a verbatim, you know, as a, um, as an experience where I needed to work through those real feelings and those real experiences that I had alongside what kind of care and support can I provide that family? And so it's a, uh, that's where I I was saying, you know, it's a very intensive experience because it's, it's really having to be transparent and vulnerable um, and honest with yourself about, you know, the experiences that you're having and, um, and, and just the reactions that, that, conversation that's going on inside of your head and presenting that to your peers and also to your supervisor. And so, um, so that's, you know, one of the things that's part of the learning aspect of it. And so I'm wondering, you know, now that you're out of your residency and you're out practicing, what does the, the day in the life of a chaplain look like? It sounds like sometimes you're working after hours. Sure. Sure. Um, so it's hard right now to really say it, a typical day in the life, um, <laughs> true, because you know, with COVID and everything <laughs> happening. But um, so I'll, I'll give you an example of you know just 
right now what it looks like because our the program that I'm in right now um, we are a, a strong volunteer program in addition to our paid staff chaplains and our stipend chaplains and so um, Right now, we're actually spread pretty thin because we're usually pretty reliant on those volunteer chaplains to help, like, bolster, you know, like, our um, support that we're able to provide and coverage. So right now, um, I come in um, around 8 o'clock in the morning, and um, I will respond normally to a lot of, like, pre-op visits. So, like, during the pre-op phone call that our outpatient um, surgery center does, um, they will ask if the patient wants to talk with a chaplain before their procedure. Okay. And so if they say yes, then we get that list um, and we are able to move through that list and visit those patients based on their requests. So um, that's a big part of, of my day and the mornings usually because in, you know, obviously surgeries kind of taper off in the afternoon. And then um, right now we've actually moved to doing more phone visits, which a lot of other um, healthcare facilities have been doing that you know, it's probably since like April, you know, they've been um, doing phone call visits and we have moved more towards that just because uh, COVID has impacted our department directly. And it's also impacted our community at a higher rate right now. I um, got to call, you know, some of our postpartum patients and congratulate them on the, you know, babies that were born last night and, or this morning, early this morning. And then, um, also had a request for, um, a Bible. And so I delivered that to a patient today. I mean, so it's just, there's all those kinds of things (laughs) that happen, um, throughout the day for sure. And then also being available to staff. Those are, you know, just some of the things in a typical day in the life of a chaplain, I guess. So I love it. There's so there's a big variety then. Um, I think your mention of what workers are going through right now is, is one of the reasons we've got doses support because there's, there isn't a platform for workers to share. There isn't support for workers. And I know that employers say that there are employee wellness programs and employers say that there are places to support their employees. But the truth is people on night shift don't always have access to those things or people don't feel like they have the time to access those things or people are just like, really the resource needs to come to the employee. So um, I've actually been the recipient of some chaplain services as a nurse where I've gotten blessings done to my hands. Every once in a while during a, a bad code situation or something something that's really tough, I've had a chaplain just round on on the staff and say, how are you after going through that? And really, yeah. that that should be the standard. Like that mm-hmm. should be happening after every code that, I mean, and I know that chaplains respond to codes. I I do know that. And so the folks out there, when I say a code, I mean um, a cardiopulmonary resuscitation, somebody is actually like died and the staff are trying to revive this person, which can be very violent um, and traumatic to perform. And in fact, if you're doing it right, you're breaking ribs. So um, a lot of people don't know that, that if they're doing CPR correctly, you will have broken ribs. But um, as someone who has done that CPR and broken those ribs, I can tell you that you can't just step away and continue working. You, It's very violent and traumatic. Um, and 
I think that chaplains are very underutilized when it comes to employee health and wellness. Even for someone like me who doesn't consider themselves to be religious, I do consider myself someone that can be spiritual and would need support after a situation like that. It's really funny because um, I I feel like this is the gazillionth time I've said this on the show, um, at least um, in the last few episodes anyway that I've recorded. I've said it was hard before COVID. I mean, Mm -hmm. we were Mm -hmm. still coding people and people were still dying. Mm -hmm. And there were really tough, abusive family situations and all the Mm -hmm. stuff that we see in healthcare. It was hard before COVID. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's even harder now. So let's um, switch gears a little bit to get back to chaplaincy, because I am curious as to how chaplains are represented on TV or in the media? What have you seen out there? Well, actually, COVID um, has really changed the face of that. Um, I've seen tremendous amount of articles written about um, chaplains because they're filling this void, essentially, that families aren't able to be at the bedside of patients, um, especially COVID positive patients. I I mean, I'm talking about like New York Times, I mean, like major, you know, news outlets are covering chaplains. And so it's really exciting just so that people will understand our work better because um, um, I think that we have gotten um, a lot more exposure through um, COVID in a positive way, obviously. Um, Yeah. And and so there's uh, groups like the um, Chaplaincy Innovation Lab that actually you can go to their website and there's like lists and lists and lists of all the different articles. Um, Interesting. Which people are covered not only nationally, but even locally. Right now, we do have a lot more. Whenever it comes to like movies and TV and, you know, like kind of more that kind of stuff, not maybe not as much representation. <laughs> so Yeah, that's I mean, so that's got to feel really good because I I think so we try to really elevate underrepresented voices in healthcare here. And um, one thing I've noticed is uh, a lot of the professions that we that we talk to on the show are are female um, dominated, but yours is hasn't historically been. So tell me a little bit about that. Men have always been leaders within religious um, circles. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to chaplaincy, what have you noticed going through your training and practicing? I felt really supported in my training. Um, it's interesting because it, so one of the things about our training experiences is that our groups are made up of a diverse, you know, grouping. And so people come from all different faith backgrounds or no faith background at all. And so even within the group, there could be disagreement with women in ministry and women as chaplains. And so getting the opportunity to be that that person that they get to see in as their colleague and to to recognize as being called to this role and, yeah. and saying that to me, my sex doesn't matter, you know, because I'm, I'm called to do this work and this is, this is where I'm supposed to be. And so that representation matters because you're, you're actually teaching your colleagues that it's important. And I, I also think that there's a maternal, I mean, it sounds like you're a mom and I, I am as well, but I think a lot of people feel more comfortable with a woman even even men might feel more comfortable being vulnerable with a a woman because of a maternal presence or um and, and that's 
that's a big assumption, I suppose, but I, I do think that there's something to that that some people could find comfort in. Yeah, I mean, I think it really just depends on the person and and what they, you know, what they what they're experiencing and and what their background is. Because I would say there's um, other people that I can, I mean, I can tell very quickly that they're very uncomfortable with me as a okay. as a female um, chaplain, um, even. Even today, I had a visit with someone where the family member present with the patient said, well, you don't see that every day. And I said, what's that? And he's like a female chaplain. And I said, well, here I am. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, sometimes I get identified as the unicorn. I mean, it's not even like subtle at all. It's very much (laughs) verbalized. And so I, I try to embrace that. You know, I've had, I've had nurse interns that say, you know, I've never seen a female chaplain before. And I said, well, I'm so glad that you got to meet one today. Wow. I mean, it sounds like you, you're really embracing it. You know, not every time am I that you know, witty or that whatever I want to think I am. But there are times where I can be very frustrated. I mean, I had another incident yesterday where I, I know the family member wouldn't look me in the eye because I was, I mean, I'm female and they don't recognize females in ministry leadership positions. And, and I, and I want to respect that, you know, and, and, and so it's, it's interesting for sure. Um, Cause it's, that's been a big part of my whole, I mean, my whole, journey of, of being where I am now is, is having to really face some of those difficult um, conversations and, and perspectives um, and just say, I, I can't change who I am. It's so interesting because just by showing up and and doing a good job, you are already pushing pushing that envelope and, and paving the way for the next woman that's behind you um, wanting to walk the same path. While we let's sit with that for a second mm-hmm. and let's take a short break. And when we come back, Megan will share a story from her practice and some self care measures. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the show. We have Megan Pike, our Master of Divinity, our hospital chaplain here with us to share her story and some self-care tips. So take it away, Megan. Sure. Thanks, Vanessa. Um, We had talked earlier about um, my experience um, going into a room, you know, of a patient that had a newborn, and I had to really reflect on my own experience um, with my own child you know, having her and not being able to be in the same room with her. And and it was really a, a transformative experience for me because, um, like I said, she was born on her due date and she was healthy and aspirated meconium. I mean, just totally unexpected. And I, um, I, I really um, found myself in a place of, of having to confront all my expectations with, you know, what I thought was going to happen, all these plans and all these things that I had expected to just be turned on their head and to have uh, my child have to be resuscitated. Um, And actually my, my um, spouse ended up, our plan was always if something would happen to the baby, that my spouse would go and be with the baby. Mm -hmm. And so he took that to heart and he ended up running with the, the team that had her and taken her to the resuscitation room and, you know, was there watching her get CPR, which I've seen CPR so many times. And I just, 
It's I just traumatic. shudder. Yeah, I just shudder yeah. at the fact that he had to see that, you know, on Does her. he have and any healthcare training? He does not. He's he's actually also a minister. Yeah. Oh, oh, funny. He's, he's so he really didn't know what he was what he was walking into by by being there. No, not at all. And and he eventually was discovered, um, I think, by the charge nurse that was there and <laughs> was asked to, you know, go, oh, will you go out here and sit down, you know, and and so I think he had a chance to just kind of catch up with everything and what was really going on and what was mm-hmm. happening. And and so um, so I was in the room and I was, you know, getting sewn up and, you know, just kind of the adrenaline of everything and yeah. and realizing that, you know, obviously something was wrong with her, but working in the healthcare setting, I had, you know, at that point I had a lot, a lot of trust, you know, I had actually worked at that hospital before and made it a very intentional choice to not deliver at the hospital that I was working at at the time Mm -hmm. because of something like this happening. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to have to go back, you know, after my maternity leave and I didn't want to have to face, you know, those kinds of situations if anything were to happen. And so you can kind of tell I'm a planner, but (laughs) I am, Yeah. And I was just kind of in this adrenaline state. I was in this kind of a Zen state and it was really interesting, Vanessa, because um, my spouse ended up coming back and, you know, updated me on what's going on. And I just really went to this place of like, really went to my place to cope. And, and it was so fascinating to me because um, it's what I try to evoke in, in the patients and the families and the staff that I interact with. You so know, your training so, came in really handy. It really did. I mean, it was kind of <laughs> insane. And, um, and I ended up, you know, being just in this calm place because I was able to trust. And then what was really interesting, and, and again, there's a lot of adrenaline, obviously, just delivering a baby. Oh, for sure. And, the hormones. Um, yeah. And I actually, I didn't have any pain medicine, so I was feeling everything and I was able to walk around and everything. And so, um, so I was just kind of in this, you know, kind of crazy state. And I, um, uh, remember the, um, pediatric doctor, um, coming in and, and at that point it was really, it was just kind of fascinating to watch it all from, you know, from the side as a patient, was uh, a nurse came in really fast before, the, sorry, before the doctor came in and was like, has Dr. So-and-so come in yet? And we were like, no. And I was like, oh, crap, what's going on, you know? And so, um, and then she rushed off and then the doctor comes in and and he does the typical thing, which I've seen these doctors do, you know, in like the family <laughs> consult room of the emergency department is they'll just say, tell me what it is that you know what's going on. And I just said, we just need to stop right here. And I said, is she alive or dead? And I, he was just totally taken aback. And I just said, I need to know before we talk about anything else, is she alive or is she dead? And he said, oh my gosh, she's alive. You know, and like he said, I am so sorry. I didn't realize you didn't know that. And I said, wow. no, you didn't know that. You know, I just, I before we talk about what we know or what we think is happening, I was like, I need to know in this moment, you know, if she's alive or dead. And, and, um, and for me, that was like a really significant um, moment because I um, asserted myself as a patient um, and as a mom, as a parent, and was advocating, you know, for the best um, that I needed, that my family needed. And so then we were able to just move forward as a conversation and talk about the fact that she was going to be, you know, put on this um, 
cooling, you know, um, therapy and that she would look this way and she would be in this isolate and be taken over to the children's hospital and all these different things. And so um, then we were able to put a plan in motion. And so it was, um, it was definitely my training, I think, that really helped me just process all of that and allow myself to also advocate for myself as well. Because, um, you know, I, I understand the approach, you know, that the doctors and even some of the nurse practitioners and the staff have and, and, you know, wanting to kind of find out what, what they think is happening. But, you know, Mm -hmm. for some people, they just need to know in the moment, you know, know, all I know is the person was in a car wreck, (laughs) you know, are they alive or dead, you know, and then we can talk about what it is that I think happened or, you know, all I know is that they were clenching their chest and then they fell down the stairs, you know, what, are they alive or dead? You know, that's all I want to know right now. And, um, and so, it's, it's a, it's an interesting space to be in, you know, as a patient and then, you know, to go through that, um, experience, you know, for sure. And then, uh, what was kind of an incredible redeeming side of all of that is that, um, she ended up coming out of the ICU 17 days later and got to take her home and, and, um, it was a lot of grief there, you know, cause I didn't get to hold her for several days and then, Aww. um, didn't get to do the nursing like I thought I would and, you know, ended up doing pumping and, you know, all those things. And so I had to walk through all that grief and recognize it. And that was the thing that was so interesting. One of my, yeah, I think that I I can actually relate to that because you, you plan how you're going to do all of that. Mm -hmm. And my, my son was five weeks early. So like we thought we, we weren't ready five weeks ahead. I mean, Mm -hmm. so you, you think, you know, how things are going to go. Yeah. And you think you've got this plan. And then when it doesn't work out that way, you, it, and that it is grieving. It is a, mm-hmm. is, it is a grief process. And mm-hmm. even though it's this happy, wonderful thing, it's like, this is, you're grieving what you, you're grieving for lost expectations. And, mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Even if you're not talking about children, it just in life, when things don't go the way that you, that you planned for. I mean, you planned so much for a baby <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and then things just fly off the rails. And, um, I think people can really relate to that. And mm-hmm. your, your training has, has got to be the thing that saved you there, man. Cause yeah. well, <laughs> I'm and- over here, like still mad that I had an epidural. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that what's so interesting is I ended up, so you know, I was, I finished up my second year of training, um, you know, after my maternity leave and coming back. And then I ended up going on um, as a PRN chaplain at the children's hospital where my daughter was cared for. And I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not had that time to really process and and experience all that. And then probably one of the most kind of closure experiences with all of that was that I was actually walking down the hallway of the NICU that I had walked, you know, like, several times days, you know, that we were there and I was walking down that hallway as a chaplain, having just been with a family and providing support to them. And I looked up on the wall where they had this, you know, uh, poster board of, you know, shout outs to the nurses. And I saw our post-it note for our daughter whenever we were there almost a year, you know, prior. And I just thought, you know what, that is just an incredible like just testimony to this whole process because I mean like the fact that not only you know did we you know come here as a patient and family and you know get to 
have a positive outcome, you know, obviously and everything and taking her home and, and, and being able to be with her now and, and then to be able to go back there and work and to be able to serve patients and serve families that went through similar experiences as we did and, and to see that, you know, posted of like, you know, thank you so much for what you've done for my family. And now that I'm, you know, I was able to be a part of that team, you know, for that family that I had, you know, served that day. So, um, so that was kind of an amazing, you know, aha moment too, you know, like almost a year later of being able to be there and, and serve that, that family. So, yeah. Well, it sounds like, well, it sounds like you have a lot of coping skills just built into your work, but um, we like to talk some self-care. So what are your favorite self-care things to do to take care of yourself? I'm sure you do have some very hard days at work where people die and hard things are, there are hard things. And so how do you cope with that? Sure. Um, I see a therapist regularly. So um, absolutely. Um, see somebody that's actually encouraged um, in our training is to um, have a therapeutic relationship with a professional uh, because this is really hard work um, and and there needs to be an outlet, a safe outlet in which to to talk about it. And um, so that is something that I absolutely do and advocate for other people. Um, That was actually one of the first, you know, people that I found in moving to a new community, um, was finding a therapist. And okay. um, now I'm, a lot of people think, well, I don't have time to go. And, and now you can do telehealth. And so mm-hmm. now you can do virtual counseling mm-hmm. and there, mm-hmm. there really is a lot more availability out there. So Absolutely. I, I agree. Yeah. That's a great coping, coping strategy, um, that other people could utilize and and feel empowered to utilize. Is there anything else that you love doing? Yeah. um, So I have um, started doing some gardening. Um, That has been just something really fun to do. And and so I've gotten into some seasonal plants and then also like food producing plants. And and that's just okay. So when the four horsemen come, you will have food. You'll be able to feed your family. Yeah. Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and we've come full circle. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. Megan, thank you so much for joining Dose of Support and for sharing what a chaplain does mm-hmm. on the daily. Um, you guys are in every healthcare setting and and really not well represented in in the media and not well known until maybe just now. So um, if people want to reach out to you or if they have more questions, do you want them to go through me or do you want them to reach out to you? Um, Sure. They could definitely reach out to me for sure. I'd love it. Okay. Are you on social media or? Okay. So I am on Instagram and uh, my handle is armeganjoelle. So that's Arkansas, Megan Joel. Um, and then um, I'm also available by email, which could probably put that out there somewhere too. And I would love to be in contact and, and be available that way. So yeah. Very good. And listeners, you know what to do. I'm at Dose of Support on everything. You can find us on Instagram, in our private Facebook group. You can email me at hello at doseofsupport.com. And you know, we've got a whole list of episodes now up on the website. So go to doseofsupport.com and look at all the episodes and figure out if you haven't listened to something, go back because there's so many stories 
stories that need to be heard. Um, And if you're really enjoying the show, please rate and review Maybe go to therapy and get outside in your garden. All right. So I will talk to you guys again next week. Every role in healthcare is important, and these experiences matter. We'll be back next week with a brand new guest and a whole different story. Until then, make connections, you guys. Give each other a dose of support. Dose of Support is written, produced, and edited by me, Vanessa Casper, with exclusive music by Rafael Sequeira. Don't forget to rate the show, write a review, and leave feedback wherever you listen. I'm punching out until next week, where we try to find some self-care in healthcare once again.